0: Hello and welcome back to the Intelligence Espresso from the Security Distillery. My name is John Boyle and together for the next half hour, myself and my co-host Anya McCrimmon will be discussing the current situation in Israel and Palestine in light of last week's attacks. Before we begin this week's podcast, I believe that it's important to include a couple of disclaimers and clarifications. We are going to be discussing a particularly charged issue today. And this week in particular, there exists a cacophony of differing voices and points of view in every single sphere of media. As such, I think now is a good time to reiterate our mission statement. At The Security Distillery, we aim to democratise the understanding of global security issues. As such, we endeavour to the best of our ability to keep our reporting to verifiable facts. In researching the current situation, we have been meticulous in our reporting, but given the dynamic nature of the conflict, we are doing so in a fog of war, with facts, figures, and narratives being constantly battled over. It is also important to note that we are associated with the IMSA's course, uh, so we represent a cohort from around the world with similarly diverse opinions and paradigms. This is the beauty of both our degree and the security distillery itself, In as charged an issue as this, however, our listenership encompasses this tapestry of backgrounds. Not every person will be content with what is going to be discussed today. In light of this, I hope you consider how we've conducted our research and how we've presented it to you. I implore you to be mindful of how you interpret media and adopt a critical eye for discussions around conflict generally, but particularly when it's filtered through an infographic on social media. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing wholly good about conflict. To frame anything as glorious or justified only serves to perpetuate war and suffering. Further to this, it has been said that the current iteration of violence is shaping up to become a war of disinformation. So be conscious of what is being said, how it's being framed, and above all else, who is set to benefit, ki bene, from the argument that you're hearing. With all this in mind, and with the hope of not falling into the weeds all that much, we've decided to focus around three key research questions. Firstly, how did the attack happen? Secondly, how did Israel's intelligence community fail? And thirdly, how we expect the situation to take shape over the next few weeks. Firstly, a bit of context is required. Gaza is a densely populated strip of land on the Mediterranean coast populated by some 2.2 million Palestinians who fled to the enclave from Zionist paramilitaries during the frenzied violence of what the Palestinians call al-Nakba in the 1940s. Since 2007, both Israel and Egypt have imposed an indefinite blockade of the territory, controlling the flow of food, water, the supply of which is under the recommended daily allowance stipulated by the UN, And most importantly, people. This has led human rights groups in Israel and throughout the world to conclude that the blockade renders the Gaza Strip the largest open-air prison in the world. This situation is compounded by a relentless aerial bombing campaign against Hamas, which Israel claims to be exhaustingly designed to minimise civilian casualties, though it has resulted in thousands of civilian deaths and tens of thousands more injured. Hamas has conducted an aerial campaign of its own, using rudimentary and therefore often inaccurate rockets, smuggled into the territory and fired into Israel. The effects of this have largely been curtailed by Israel's so-called Iron Dome, a missile defence system which neutralises the vast majority of rockets. As such, the effects of the conflict have taken shape asymmetrically, with Palestinian civilians making up the vast majority of casualties. It is within this context of desperation, as well as the falling stature of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, that Hamas, whose charter calls for the abolition of the State of Israel, has been able to grow in power and legitimacy in the region. These sentiments of desperation were compounded by the signing of the Abraham Accords, which saw many of Palestine's traditional supporters seemingly turn their backs on the Palestinian cause in normalising relations with Israel. In recent years, Israel's numerous attacks on worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque as well as high-profile land seizures by Israeli settlers in the West Bank and the violent crackdown of the 2018 Great March of Return resulted in numerous flare-ups between the two. What happened on Saturday was different, however. In something of a perfect storm for Israel, With the IDF at minimal operational capacity, as personnel had returned home to spend Shabbat with their families, Hamas struck. In the early morning of the 7th of October, almost 50 years to the day after the Yom Kippur War, Hamas launched a coordinated assault on Israel, which it called Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, an operation which has no recent equal in terms of complexity or, indeed, brutality. Beginning with a blistering air assault on the towns of Ashdod and Ashkelon and even Tel Aviv some 70 kilometers away, it is estimated that Hamas fired between 3,000 and 5,000 rockets on Saturday alone. This was followed by a coordinated breakout of an estimated 1,000 Hamas fighters who breached the surrounding security barriers using remote-controlled drones carrying explosives and bulldozers. One particularly striking feature of this breakout was the use of motorised paragliders manned by Hamas fighters. This is obviously the first case of this ever happening in a conflict, and it's captured people's imaginations to a huge degree. In any case, Hamas militants fanned out and made their way to Israeli villages close to the border, killing both soldiers and civilians alike, while taking a significant number of others captive, including children and the elderly who have since been taken over the border. There are a number of startling allegations of brutality, many of which have not been independently verified and as such will not be mentioned here. Despite this, they've been repeated ad nauseum on media channels and even in the Oval Office. There is, however, no denying that this was a truly brutal attack in what the AP described as a rampage believed to be the worst civilian massacre in Israeli history. Hamas killed at least 260 revellers in an all-night rave, being held in a field outside Kibbutz Rayam in southern Israel, a stone's throw away from the Gaza border. Again, many others were taken hostage and brought back to Gaza. Once more, there have been allegations, particularly here on social media, of truly staggeringly frenzied violence. In some cases, these have been disproved, and there exists still an unclear picture of the extent and tenor of the violence. What is an undeniable fact, however, is that there was little to no discrimination of who was targeted. Striking, too, was the level of training that the Goodman had, leading the US to open an investigation into the role of Iran's Revolutionary Guard in providing training for the militants. This is a highly contested, Issue with one media outlet comparing it to the discussion of WMDs before the war in Iraq. A Hamas military wing spokesperson said that those who were taken hostage had been taken to various hideouts around Gaza, including in tunnels. Since the renewed bombardment of Gaza, Hamas has claimed that some of these hostages have perished at the hands of the IDF. Importantly, the Israeli military didn't respond to the initial attack for several hours. In one case, it took up to 12 hours to get to one village, by which time many had been killed. As the dust settles on Israel's side of the divide, and the sheer extent of the violence comes to light, many, both in Israel and throughout the world, have been left wondering how? How can one of the most heavily resourced and technologically advanced intelligence communities in the world? be so unprepared for an attack as complex as this? In short, how could the intelligence community fail so badly?
1: Israel's intelligence service is hailed as one of the finest in the world, yet, On the 7th of October, it saw what could be considered the worst intelligence failure since the United States invasion of Iraq. In this segment, I will discuss some of the possible factors that led to Hamas being able to carry out their unprecedented attack. In order to discuss these failures, we will first need to understand the structure of the Israeli intelligence service. The Intelligence Community in Israel is a multi-agency organisation comprised of Shin Bet, the Domestic Security Service, Mossad, the Foreign Security Service, the Israeli Military Intelligence Agency, and Unit 8200, the Israeli Military Signal Intelligence Service. Many of these agencies are comparable to the US intelligence services such as the FBI, the CIA, and the US Defense Intelligence Agency. However... Israel differs from the U.S. in that there is no overall intelligence coordinator who is aware of and oversees all of the different intelligence components. Interestingly, this position was only created in the U.S. upon the recommendation of the 9-11 Commission due to the intelligence service's fragmented approach, which resulted in them being unable to piece together numbers of individual reports and contributed to the success of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Now that we understand the structure of Israel's intelligence service, We can dive into its actions, or lack thereof, in countering Hamas. Before the attacks on the 7th of October, Israel appeared nearly impenetrable. It seems, however, that the Israeli intelligence service's impressive reputation could have fallen victim to their own press. Peter Lerner, a retired lieutenant colonel in the Israeli Defence Force and a former IDF spokesperson, believes that Israel had an overconfidence in its defence mechanisms, such as the barrier around Gaza and their Iron Dome missile defence system. Moreover, just weeks before, some senior intelligence officials claimed that Hamas was not interested in widespread conflict and that the group had been deterred by recent Israeli counterterrorism operations. In sum, many officials believed that the group was incapable of an attack such as that of the 7th of October and based their security decisions on this false assumption. This is indeed reminiscent of the 9-11 attacks in the United States and the US intelligence service's so-called failure of imagination. Much like the US failed to imagine Al-Qaeda's use of planes as a weapon, Israel failed to imagine Hamas's multifaceted attack capabilities. This failure of imagination is compounded when we consider the reports that Egypt warned Israel of an imminent attack from Hamas. After leaving a closed-door intelligence briefing for lawmakers on the Middle East crisis, the US House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee head, Michael McCall made a statement to reporters saying, We know that Egypt has warned the Israelis three days prior that an event like this could happen. Furthermore, an Egyptian intelligence official who wished to remain anonymous reiterated McCall's claims, saying that Cairo had repeatedly warned the Israelis that something big was being planned in Gaza. He went on to state that Cairo made it clear that the situation was going to come to an explosive boiling point in the immediate future and that whatever it was would be big. He added that Israel regrettably ignored these warnings. However, Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has refuted the reports, calling these claims absolutely false and totally fake news. Despite Netanyahu's rejection of these claims, Sir Alex Younger, who served as the former chief of the UK.'s Foreign Intelligence Agency from 2014 to 2020, argued that the main reason Hamas was able to carry out their attack on the 7th of October was institutional complacency in Israel. This institutional complacency is claimed to lie in Israel's intent to expand their territory in the Palestinian West Bank. This objective is also blamed for the long response time which cost the lives of hundreds of Israelis and took the failure of the state to another level, constituting both an intelligence and operative failure. The increased presence of Israeli security and defence forces in the West Bank meant that there were gaps in the security around the Israel-Gaza border. In order to make up for the lower number of troops, there was a very high reliance on and overconfidence in measurement and signatures intelligence rather than human intelligence. Hamas took advantage of Israel's over-reliance on technology and went dark. A former member of Unit 8200, Alan Arvatz, believes that Hamas learned how intelligence was being collected and then learned how to avoid it. He believes that Hamas took its communications underground, never speaking about the attacks electronically and instead splitting into cells which each had a specific role and communicating these to each other verbally through representatives. By taking these conversations underground, both figuratively and literally, Hamas were able to avoid Israeli intelligence services detecting their plot through their surveillance satellites. It seems that the majority of Israel's intelligence failures stemmed either from a case of believing their own press too much or not believing their opponents enough. It will be many years before we know exactly how these failings unraveled, as Israel is too busy being at war to set up a committee with a mission similar to that of the 9-11 Commission, that is, understanding where the intelligence community went wrong We can, however, analyse the possible fallout that is to come as a result. So what has happened since the attacks? On the 7th of October, Hamas militants took an estimated 150 people hostage and there are widespread and serious concerns for these innocent civilians' well-being. On the 9th of October, Israel imposed a total blockade in Gaza, which involves withholding essential supplies such as food, water, electricity and medicines in response to Hamas threatening to kill these hostages. Upon announcing the blockade, the Israeli defence minister threatened to bomb anyone who would attempt to provide humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. The Israeli blockade of Gaza has received extreme criticism from organizations such as Amnesty International and the United Nations, with Amnesty International Secretary-General Agnes Calamard demanding that the Israeli authorities must immediately restore Gaza's electricity supply and suspend the increased restrictions imposed as a result of the Minister of Defense's order of the 9th of October 2023. The biggest outcry surrounding the blockade is that it could equate to a war crime from Israel. The reasoning is that if the siege targets civilians rather than a legitimate means to undermine Hamas's military capabilities, or is found to be disproportionate, this would be considered a war crime under the Geneva Convention and the case could be brought before the International Criminal Court. In response to the blockade announcement, on the 10th of October, Hamas sent out a message to Israelis living in Ashkelon, advising them to leave the city by 5pm. Shortly after 5pm, rockets rained down on the city, leaving people injured, but there are no reports of fatalities from this attack. The reactions continued, and on the 13th of October, Israel announced an evacuation order to those in the north of Gaza. The order dictates that 1.1 million people living in the north of the Gaza Strip would need to relocate to the south. The World Health Organization has called this mass evacuation disastrous and has appealed for its immediate reversal. The UN has echoed this and denounced the evacuation order, stating that devastating humanitarian consequences would be inevitable, and also called for the order to be scrapped, as it has the power to turn what is already a tragedy into a calamitous situation. Despite the calls for the order to be rescinded, tens of thousands of people left their homes in northern Gaza on Friday, attempting to travel to areas south of Wadi Gaza. This movement will add to the more than 400,000 Palestinians who have already been internally displaced and some are calling it a second Nakba. The reality of the situation is this. The war between Israel and Hamas is a defining moment in the story of our generation and will drastically reshape international relations forever. This war has resulted in mass casualties on both sides, with an estimated 1,900 Palestinians and 1,300 Israelis having been killed so far, and there will doubtless be many more. More reports will follow in the coming days, weeks and months, and the Security Distillery will continue to inform our listeners of any updates on the conflict.